0: Let's turn together in our copies of God's Word to Colossians chapter 2, looking at verses 20 through 23, and specifically verse 20. Before reading, let's join our hearts together in prayer, asking for the Lord's blessing. Our Lord and our God, fill now this assembly with your word and spirit. Condescend to us and dwell in our midst, and open our eyes that we may see Jesus Christ dwelling in heavenly glory, and may hear his voice now in the pages of his God breathed word, and work in this midst, in this assembly that converting power, that undoing power that Isaiah experienced when he saw Christ in heaven and was undone seeing his sin in light of God's holiness, and work in those who are united to Christ, that that growing and transforming and renewing power, that we may appreciate him more as crucified, died, and risen from the dead for us, and that we may be inspired and enabled to press on in our earthly pilgrimage till we see him face to face and all this we ask in his blessed name amen please stand for the reading of god's holy inspired and infallible word colossians chapter 2 beginning at verse 20 if with christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world why as if you were still alive in the world do you submit to regulations do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. This is a very important section of Colossians in which Paul is showing us the monumental significance of union with Jesus Christ for the believer. From about chapter 2, verse 11, through about chapter 3, verse 4, we see that the believer is united with Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection from the dead. In a most wonderful, glorious, supernatural way, When Christ died upon the cross at Calvary, you, believer, died with him. And when he was raised from the dead, you were raised from the dead with him. Though we are separated by time and separated by distance, and though we have never witnessed these things, you died with Christ in his death, and you were raised with Christ in his resurrection. Because Christ is our head, our mediator, our husband, our representative, you are a participant in his death and resurrection. Because as goes Christ, so goes the believer, so goes the church. And throughout this section, Paul's been going back and forth between Christ's death and his resurrection and what these mean for the believer. Paul can do this, not because he doesn't care about the order of these things. He he knows that Christ's death precedes his resurrection. Paul rather is going back and forth between Christ's death and resurrection because these two momentous events accomplish and apply different blessings for the church, blessings that we need to live out of. We've seen this already in, in chapter two. Look back at verse eleven. So here, and as Paul goes back and forth between union with Christ in his death to union with Christ in his resurrection, we'll see this when we get to chapter 3, verses 1 through 4 as well, the benefit of union with Christ in his death provides certain benefit for the believer that is accompanied by union with Christ in his resurrection from the dead. Just to survey what we've seen already, union with Christ in his death means our guilty status is taken away our corrupt nature is removed, and we can stand holy before God in Jesus Christ. And union with Christ in His resurrection means the powerful working of God has been manifested in us, and as we receive Christ, we receive His newness of life, our sins are forgiven, our enemies are defeated, we are nourished and knit together in Christ's newness of life, And more specifically for the end of chapter 2, the ritual and ceremony of the Old Covenant no longer applies to us, and no one can insist on any man-made prescriptions or thought or lifestyle that we must practice in order to have access to God. This is the same kind of thing we see here at the end of chapter 2. Keep in mind, throughout this letter, Paul is dealing with the so-called Colossian heresy, And as we've seen, this is the false teaching that insists that you must observe a combination of old covenant ritual practices and ceremonies, along with pagan practices, worldliness, in order to achieve spiritual fullness and come into God's presence. This is the false teaching that that would have us believe we're missing out if we stick just with Christ. This is the false teaching they would have us believe that Christ is pretty good, but he's not all-sufficient. He's not the total package. And what we're seeing here in this section is that Paul is again showing us the monumental significance, the heaven-opening significance and all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ crucified and raised for us. So if you think that Christ only gets you part way to God you misunderstand the significance of Christ's person and work. If you think that Christ must be supplemented by Israel's laws, by the world's practices or insights, you need to look deeper, as Paul does, at the significance of Christ's death and resurrection. So this evening, let us focus on verse 20 to see how there is freedom for the believer in Christ's death. Let's read again verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? So you can see there in verse 20, Paul is asking a question. Not because he doesn't know the answer, but because he is making a point. He is making a definite and glorious statement in verse 20 about who you are, believer, in union with Jesus Christ. So, in other words, it's like Paul is saying in verse 20, since all these wondrous things are true of you, believer, in Christ, if that is the case, why are you living as if it isn't the case? Why are you living in a worldly way when Christ has brought you into God's presence in heaven? Let's think about that statement in in verse 20 more about who the believer is. Look at the first half of verse 20 You died with Christ to the elemental spirits of the world. Now when Paul says that you believer, you church of the Lord Jesus Christ died, that is talking about something in the past. He's talking to believers like us, alive on the earth now, about something that has already taken place, an accomplished event. You died, believer, with Christ. So, since we're talking here about the believer's death in the past, and since that death took place with Christ, then listen, Paul is showing us that the believer died with Christ when Christ died. We are united to Christ in every aspect of his work, because all of his work is for us, for his people. Think about this from Confession of Faith, chapter 26, about the communion of the saints. All saints that are united to Jesus Christ their head by his spirit and by faith, have fellowship with him in his graces, sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory. So the death that Christ died was a death that I died with him because I'm united to him. So this first preposition, with, how we died with Christ, is a glorious little word. Don't pass by it. Think of our benediction that we often pronounce in our services of worship, from 2 Corinthians 13:14: "The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be what with you all." For that to be the case, for the grace, love and fellowship of the triune God to be with us is marvelous. But what is more marvelous is to have died with Christ. Why is that? Why is that even more marvelous? Because Paul uses these different words, both of which are translated with, and they communicate slightly different things. Think about this with me. To say grace be with you, Mata, is to say may grace accompany you. May grace be associated with you. May it go with you. May it go with you in a sort of uh, less intimate sense. But to say, as Paul does here in verse 20, you died with Christ, sun, that is to express an intimate personal fellowship. That is to express an intimate union. It means that in Christ, you are a participant in his death, and his death benefits you personally. It is in this intimate personal union and fellowship that Paul is communicating here in verse 20, that we died with Christ in this personal way. So what more specifically does that mean? You died, believer, with Christ. Well, there are a few other places in the New Testament where Paul speaks of the believer's death with Christ. In addition to here in Colossians 2, there's also Galatians. Galatians 2, verses 19 and 20. Paul says this, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So there in Galatians 2, similar to to here in Colossians, union with Christ in his death, specifically there in Galatians, union with Christ in his death means death to the law. Death to the law. The law is no longer a covenant of works for me. In other words, I don't have to keep the law to earn eternal life in God's presence. It's not up to me to do the impossible, thankfully. I don't need to earn right standing with God by a personal, perpetual, exact, and entire obedience. Christ has done that for me. I'm freed from the law in that heaven-earning sense. But also in Galatians believers are dead to the law in its temporary form of the ceremonies and rituals of Israel. All the types and shadows of the law, all the animal sacrifices, the tabernacle, the temple, the priesthood, circumcision, Passover, and on and on, all were meant to be temporary. As we saw a few sermons ago in Colossians 2, they were all shadows of which Christ is the fullness and the real thing. But in themselves, those practices, in themselves, they're worthless. They were given to Israel for a time to prepare them for the coming of Christ, to communicate Christ to them ahead of time. But now that Christ has come, why would you need those rituals and practices ever again? As God was preparing Israel for the coming of Christ, He ordained the use of these ceremonies to communicate Christ to his people, to give them a foretaste of his work yet to be accomplished. That's again in in Colossians 2 verse 17. They are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Again, if Christ the substance has actually come, if he's actually accomplished redemption, If by his once and for all perfect work he has done what the blood of bulls and goats could never do, why would you go back to those old, lifeless ways? So now that Christ has come, we died to the law, to those old practices, those old rituals, and we're no longer obligated to them. That's another major place where Paul talks about the believer's death with Christ there in Galatians. But perhaps most significantly most significantly about the believer's death with Christ is how Paul unpacks this truth in Romans chapter 6. Let's keep our finger here in Colossians and turn to Romans chapter 6. Romans 6 after Paul has just spoken of the the fullness of grace and righteousness and salvation that has come in the advent of Jesus Christ that more than makes up for the sin and death of Adam. Romans 6 verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus And alive to God in Christ Jesus. So, just by way of brief comment, notice a a few things here about the believer's death with Christ. Here in Romans 6, as Paul presents this glorious reality of union with Christ in his death, Paul is looking at what that means for our relationship to sin. There in Romans 6, Paul sees sin as an enslaving power. As a master that controls us, as chains that bind us, as a power that compels us to sin. But thankfully, union with Christ in his death means for the believer that we are set free from sin's enslaving power. That's what John Murray called definitive sanctification. There's been a once for all definitive breach. A breaking from, an irreversible um, breaking from the mastery and lordship of sin. That is one of the many benefits of union with Christ specifically in his death. And since there Paul cannot talk about Christ's death without also talking about his resurrection, the complement of being set free from sin's enslaving power is to be set free, what? To newness of life with God. Death to sin in Christ's death, life to God in Christ's resurrection. That is one of the benefits of union with Jesus Christ. So as you make your way back to Colossians 2, and I'll summarize these things for us. As we see in these other places in Paul, in Galatians and Romans, together with Colossians, we get a fuller picture of what it means that the believer has died with Christ. In Galatians Death with Christ means freedom from the law. No, it is no longer up to you to earn your salvation by law-keeping, and you are set free from all the, the types and rituals and ceremonies of animal sacrifice and temple and tabernacle observance because Christ has fulfilled all these things. Death with Christ frees you from the law in this sense. As we saw in Romans... Death with Christ means freedom from sin's enslaving power. So when we see the same kind of language here in Colossians 2, verse 20, how we died with Christ, we can see that death with Christ brings the same kind of freedom, specifically freedom from this present sin-cursed world destined to destruction. As we'll see in chapter 3 in a few weeks, Union with Christ in his resurrection means that we're no longer citizens of this sin-cursed world destined to destruction, but citizens where? Of heaven, destined for glory. So not only has the invisible church, have all believers died with Christ, Colossians 2 verse 20, specifically, we have died with Christ to what? To the elemental spirits of the world. There is another strong preposition, another strong little word word that we should not pass over. It it would be better there in verse 20 to translate, you die with Christ away from the elemental spirits of the world, out of the control of these elemental spirits. So the believer's death here with Christ in verse 20 shows two things up to this point. It shows a personal intimate fellowship with Christ, You died with him, and it carries with it a separation, a release from bondage to the world's made-up practices. You died with Christ away from the elemental spirits of the world. This shows us specifically here in Colossians what union with Christ in his death frees us from. But what is that thing that we're freed from there in verse 20, the elemental spirits of the world? Well, we've seen this phrase already in Colossians. It came up earlier in chapter 2. Look back in, in verse 8 of chapter 2, where Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to, there it is, the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So back when we looked at, at this verse, we saw how the, the elemental spirits could probably translate it better, the, the fundamental elements, the, the building blocks of something. This is the, this is the basics of something, the, the ABCs. And the way Paul talks negatively about these elemental spirits, these building blocks, here in Colossians 2, he talks about these things in a similar way in Galatians 4. Let me read to us from Galatians chapter 4. Listen to this same language of the elemental spirits. When Paul talks about how When the heir, the one who receives the inheritance, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, rather to be known by God, How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. So do you hear there? And did you read here in Colossians 2? In these two places in Paul, how he describes the fundamental elements, these elemental spirits translated there in the ESV, in a wholly negative way. What in Galatians Paul calls the elemental spirits, he, ta- he, calls, he, he refers um, that, that description to the law. You only needed the law. God's people only needed those rituals and ceremonies because they were, as son, under age. They weren't ready yet for the coming of Jesus. That's why there was generations of animal sacrifice, of priesthood, of tabernacle and temple worship. They were like middle schoolers, not ready to become full-grown men and women over the house. They were underage, and so they needed those prescriptions of the law to prepare them for the coming of Jesus. And so there in Galatians 4, what he calls the weak and worthless elementary principles, the rituals of the law, now that Christ has come, can you not see Galatians that circumcision is totally worthless? It does nothing in and of itself. It's not a magic trick. It does nothing to make you right before God. Why are you insisting on it, adding, faith in, adding circumcision to faith in Christ? Circumcision does nothing. It's part of the old way of doing things that is now completely outmoded because Christ has come and is the fulfillment of all those things. Well, in the same kind of way, though slightly different, in the similar kind of way, Paul here in in Colossians 2 talks about why you would submit to the regulations of the elemental spirits of the world of pagan practices made up by the autonomous sinful mind of man to get you a, a false empty promise to get you closer to god do you not see paul is saying here the impotence of everything in comparison to the fullness of life that has dawned in jesus christ whether it's the old way of the law in the animal sacrifices and passover and all those rituals That are now fulfilled now that Christ has come, or whether it's the made up practices of any of the other nations, anything that the sinful mind of man can come up with. Why would you staple these and add these to Christ when in Christ you have more than enough to get you into God's presence in heaven and that permanently and eternally? Why are you living under this old way of life, these old regulations? when you have died to them. That is the significance of, of Paul emphasizing here the benefit of union with Christ in his death. When Christ died, you died with him to all the old ways of Israel and to all the up practices of the nations. Because in Christ has appeared a new way of life where he has accomplished the opening of heaven itself and brought you there with him in his resurrection and ascension, what could you possibly need to add to that? Christ is an all-sufficient Savior. Christ is the pioneer that leads us into the new world of heaven, having, cutting us, having cut us off from this sin-cursed world destined for destruction. The point here, believer, is that you have a new home and a new head jesus christ this world is no longer your home so as paul puts it there in verse 20 why would you live like you belong here why would you submit to the regulations of either israel or of the pagans who fail to understand the significance of the fullness of christ live out of him not out of anything that would add to him whether it's the law in israel the the system of rituals and ceremonies, or whether it's the made-up practices of our culture. Both are inherently lifeless and worthless. And as we'll see, Lord willing, next time, not only are those made-up practices of of the world or even the temporary practices of Israel, not only are they inherently lifeless, they are bondage. They are bondage compared to the freedom of newness of life in Jesus Christ. So stick to him, not to the old, outdated ways of this sin-cursed world destined to destruction. That helps us to, to answer the, the second half of verse 18. Since all these things, uh, or verse 20 rather, if, if all this is true, if you died with Christ to all the weak and worthless and lifeless ways of this sin-cursed world, Why, as if you were still living in the world, would you submit to its regulations? This is completely in harmony with what the Apostle John would say later on. You are in the world, yes, but you're not of it. You are a stranger and pilgrim in this world. You have a new principle of life, which is Christ himself. Why would you be submissive to all the the regulations of bondage that come from the law, whether the, the Old Testament law or the laws of men. That, that last word there in verse 20 about submitting to regulations, that's, that's passive. You could, you could translate it, why are you regulated? Why are you, are, are you obligated to these things? In other words, there, there's a real godly kind, pastoral way that Paul is saying to the, to the believer who fails to understand the significance of Christ, what are you doing? Why do you not see the significance of who Christ is in his death and resurrection and what you have in him, united to him in his death? Why would we be, be, be submissive to what is man-made or be submissive to what God ordained temporarily Now that Christ has come, Christ brings freedom, Christ brings life, Christ brings us to God, Christ brings us to a new world, a world of heaven. Everything else is something that you have to do that comes from your abilities and comes from this sin-cursed earth that could never attain heaven. But Christ came from heaven to earth to bring us from earth to heaven. And in his death upon the cross 2,000 years ago, those who are united to him by faith are no longer part of this sin-cursed world destined for destruction. As we'll see more in chapter 3, the the complement to that of union with Christ in his resurrection, now that we're set free from slavery in this world, we belong to the new higher world above, and it is those things, the things of heaven that we are to seek, as Paul unpacks in the beginning of chapter 3. So to bring this to a conclusion, we need to address both the unbeliever and the believer. To my unbelieving friend, see what what we're saying here by implication. If Christ, in his death, freed his people from all manner of bondage and slavery, then you who rebel against him and do not trust in him, you are still in bondage and slavery. You are still part of this old, evil world. This world that is destined for destruction. This world that cannot attain anything of lasting value because it rejects Christ. And your sinful heart is of a peace with this sinful world. You are destined for eternal punishment for your sin. You are stuck in, we saw in chapter 1 verse 13, in this domain of darkness, And as long as you are in this domain of darkness, you can never attain to the kingdom of God's beloved Son. If you are apart from that Son, you are a willing and enslaved participant in the superstitions and the customs and patterns and lifestyles and norms of this present sin-cursed age occupied by truth-suppressors like you and destined for judgment. But the good news is, see the freedom that comes in union with Jesus Christ in His death. Trust in Him, take hold of Him, and know the freedom of all that promises life but can't deliver, and trust in Him to receive the life that He has achieved and gives to us all who trust in Him. And to my believing friend, again, see and appreciate the wondrous, supernatural revelation of Jesus Christ for your eternal salvation, that when he died 2,000 years ago on Calvary's cross, you died with him. His death for you and your death with him means freedom. Freedom from sin's enslaving power now to serve God in newness of life. It means freedom from all the types and shadows and rituals of the law, no longer in that revolving door of of the Day of Atonement year after year after year more and more and more bloodshed that doesn't do anything you are freed from all those earlier and preparatory rituals of the law and you're also free from every man-made requirement whether from the world or from the church that would promise you greater access to God and walking in fellowship with Him (coughs) excuse me Ritterboss puts so helpfully that the church, so far as its life on earth is concerned, is determined, governed, and nourished from heaven. We are set free from this sin-cursed world of death, destined to destruction, and we are members of a new realm, members of heaven, though we have not been there yet. We still belong to, our, to, to that realm because that is where our Savior is, and in his ascension into heaven, he has brought us to God with him to glorify and enjoy him in his presence now and forever. Listen to how Herman Bovink, in his wonderful works of God, as he unpacks and, and puts together the wonderful teaching of the New Testament on union <coughs> with Jesus Christ. Christ lives and dwells in us, and we live, move, and have our being in Christ. Christ is our life. The combination in Christ, in the Lord, or in Him occurs more than 150 times in the New Testament. It indicates that Christ is the constant source, not only of the spiritual life, but that as such, He also immediately and directly dwells in the believer. The unity is as close as that between a cornerstone and a temple, a man and a woman, the head and the body, the vine and the branch. The believers are in Christ as all things by virtue of creation and providence are in God. They live in him as the fish lives in water, the bird in the air, the man in his calling, the scholar in his study. Together with him they are crucified, dead, and buried are raised again and seated at the right hand of God and glorified. They have put him on, have assumed his form, and they show in their body both the suffering and the life of Christ and are fulfilled in him. In short, Christ is all and in all. May God add his blessing to the preaching of his word that we in this place would know freedom in our Savior Jesus Christ.